Father, thank you so much for time to sing together, to worship you. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would clear our mind of distraction. Lord, that you would humble our hearts and cause us to be receptive to what you have for us this evening. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. We're all under authority, right? If you have parents, you're under, or you were at one point, under the authority of your parents. If you've ever been a student, you willingly subjected yourself to the authority of your teacher. If you've ever played a sport, you're under the authority of your coach. And if you've ever been a civilian, which I think we all are, we are under the authority of the civil government. There's no escaping authority. Now, before we move beyond these considerations, I want to point out a few observations about authority in our lives, though. First of all, in all of these circumstances, submission to authority brings some sort of benefit. Children, when they submit to their parents, get food and shelter and gas money if you're a teenager, protection. Students who submit to their teachers have a better chance, at least, of getting a passing grade, of having the teacher's favor, maybe not being called on so often. Players, when they submit to their coaches, get their coach's approval and perhaps they get better playing time. Uh, Maybe the coach doesn't yell at at them as often. And when you submit to the government, you don't get fined. There's civilian peace. I mean, imagine if there was no traffic laws or if no one obeyed them, it would be utter chaos. And so there is benefit derived from submission to authority. But number two is that authority has been given to these authorities for a reason. For example, parents have money, therefore they have authority. They have wisdom and they have experience. Therefore, they have been given authority over their children. Teachers have knowledge that's necessary for children and students to succeed in the world. Coaches, in like manner, have knowledge and expertise in a game or in a skill set of a position in order to make the player succeed. They know things and have perspectives that the players don't have. And in the same way, the government has been put in place by us for our protection. So all authorities are authorities for a reason. Now, in light of this, friends, as just a probing introduction tonight, I want to ask the question, what is your attitude towards authority? Not all possible authorities apply in each one of our lives, but we are all under several different forms of authority. And so the question to begin the evening is, how do you respond to the authorities that are in your life right now? Do you joyfully obey teachers, obey coaches, obey the laws of the land? Or are you constantly trying to escape authority, defy authority, and rebel against authority, even though you know it's wrong? Listen, friends, here's why this is important. I'm convinced that how we respond to earthly authorities is going to be indicative of how we respond to a heavenly authority. In other words, how we respond to horizontal levels of authority will impact how we respond at a vertical level. Tonight, we're going to bite off a large chunk of text, but the center focus of the entire passage this evening is going to be on the issue of authority. And eventually, we're going to get to the parable of the landowner and then an an illustration and explanation coming off of that. But I want to pave the way for us before we do that. So to begin, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to set the context for a little bit here on the issue of authority. And we begin by seeing the question that is posed of Jesus. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, it says, When he entered the temple, speaking of Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So this is the introduction to our topic this evening. Now, just to to kind of catch us up here, this is in the final week of Jesus' life. This is midweek somewhere. Within a couple days from now, he will be tried and executed at the cross. And so he enters the temple, and he's teaching, and the Pharisees come to him and ask him, Hey, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? Who ordained you to be doing things? the miracles and the teaching and the ministry that you're doing. This is the question that the Pharisees come to Jesus and 
posed to him. And at this point, I want to wonder with you, did the Pharisees really need to ask him this question? In other words, is this a question with the intent of gaining information, or is it a question in hopes of sealing Jesus' condemnation? Now, in light of Jesus' interaction with these same Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Matthew, I'm inclined to say that it's probably a question they're hoping would lead to his condemnation. This is not a question with good intentions. The Pharisees weren't genuinely wanting to know from Jesus where he had gotten his authority. They simply wanted to find something that they would condemn him with and put him to death immediately. And I think this is even made more plain as we look at Jesus' response in verse 24. It says, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Now, Jesus' response tells us something. It tells us that he knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. You compare this response with the response that he would give to others who would ask him questions, and it's totally different. Jesus knew their hearts, and so he asked a question in response to their question. And if you think about the Pharisees for a moment with me, the Pharisees at this point had rejected Jesus' claims of being the Messiah. They had created a religious system that had replaced true worship and devotion to God. And as a consequence, they were now proponents and propagators of a false system of religion that damned people. Not only this, but their hearts were so hardened that they would not hear or reason otherwise. So Jesus' response here is masterfully crafted in responding to their initial question. He asked them a question regarding the authority of John the Baptist. Now, who was John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was a wild man who lived in the wilderness who preached the message of repentance, meaning turning from sin and back to God. He believed that the kingdom of God was at hand. He proclaimed that Jesus was here and that he was the Messiah. He baptized people to prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah. And further, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He was the chosen forerunner spoken of in the Old Testament. God had his hand on John the Baptist, if you'll remember, even when he was in his mother's womb. He was uniquely appointed by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus called him the greatest man who had ever lived. Every Jew, therefore, in response to John the Baptist's message, knew that when he said the kingdom of God was at hand, that the king was also at hand. The king was affiliated with the kingdom of God. And so that's why John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. However, the Pharisees had rejected both John the Baptist's message and Jesus. They would stick to their man-made religion, viewing themselves as righteous and in no need of repentance. So, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus senses this and goes right to the heart of the issue, which was their attitude towards authority. This is behind the question that Jesus is asking them in response to their question about authority. He recognizes they did not recognize John's authority as having come from God. And again, their response is telling. Look at verse 25, the second half. It says, They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And really, friends, this response is just sad. It's sad to, be, to see people so sunk into their religion that they're unable to discern when truth is presented right before them. They had hardened their hearts to anything that Jesus said, and yet Jesus, with so much patience, gives them an opportunity to once again come back to him. And you know, just considering Jesus for a moment here, this reminds me of Jesus' interaction with Peter just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 18, verse 21. Right after the instructions on church discipline or church restoration, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And 
Culturally, the rabbis in this day would teach that if you forgave someone more than three times, it was just presumptuous and unneeded. It was ridiculous. No one ever forgave someone three times for the same sin. So Peter even takes that up a notch. He says, Lord, should we forgive them seven times when they sin against us? And what does Jesus say? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven times. Friends, Jesus had a heart full of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and patience. This was Jesus' heart. And we see that at play with the Pharisees in our passage. If you do a study on Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, it is unbelievable how patient he is with these hard-hearted, rebellious religious leaders. The Pharisees had hardened their hearts, and yet Jesus is still showing them patience and mercy in discussing eternal truth with them. Now, I believe at this point the Pharisees had began to harden their hearts, if not to the point, very near the point of no return. They had hardened their hearts so much to where now they no longer could believe, or at least they were not far from this point. And so, as a consequence, they would not submit to the authority of God as manifested in John and in Jesus. And I want to point out a bit of irony here. In chapter 21, is that despite the fact that they wouldn't submit to God's authority, the Pharisees had actually subjected themselves to two different authorities that were confining their lives, that had an influence in their decisions and their speech. The first was their religious system. They were part of a system with a hierarchy and political influence. The Pharisees were a religious group, but they were also a political group. Hence why they ended up killing Jesus uh, through the hand of the Romans. They had political influence. And so they had chosen to submit themselves to a religion. And with that came certain limitations and bindings. They were under the authority of the system to which they themselves had prescribed. And so if they answered yes, look in the text, if they answer yes to John the Baptist, they would surrender their power and influence. So that was the first authority that they had submitted themselves to. The second was that of popular opinion. A leader is someone who has followers, and if they lost the following of the public, they no longer had any influence or power at all. The people viewed John the Baptist as a prophet and Jesus as a prophet, and so they knew that they could not say no either. Either a yes or a no would have consequences on their respective authorities in their lives, so they give potentially an even worse answer, and they say, we don't know. They say, we don't know. And here's the sad reality at hand. Nowhere in this text does it ever specify that the Pharisees actually wrestled with Jesus' question. It never says that they actually contemplated the question that he was asking them. They don't think about the authority of John the Baptist. They don't think about their own question even to Jesus regarding where his authority had come from. Jesus is in the process of giving a wonderful answer to their question, but they are too caught up in what they're saying and how they look at the end of the day. And so, Jesus says, since they are not even willing to be honest and to answer a simple question, neither will he tell them what they already know he's going to say. Jesus' authority was from God the Father. Following this interaction, though, (laughs) Jesus continues to amaze me. I just can't believe how unified the scriptures are as we dig into this, friends. And so I hope you're excited with me. He's going to launch into a parable now, teaching on this same topic, the issue of authority. Verses 28 to 31 records the parable of the two sons. And listen, gang, I just want to point out something. If Jesus had answered their initial question in verse 23 by saying, it's God. God gives me my authority. I came from him. I'm his son. I'm here as his representative preaching his message. God is where I get my authority from. They would have walked down to the courthouse, demanded that Jesus be crucified and had him killed before it was his time. Jesus still had to meet with his men. He still had to prepare them for his passing. It wasn't his time. And yet, he's not going to withhold teaching the Pharisees still, and yet he's going to do it in a masterful way through a series of parables, as we'll see. So with that, we're still at kind of an introductory phase, but look at verse 28. This is a short and quick parable. It's the parable of the two sons. 
And Jesus said this, again, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man then or the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now, we'll pause right there for a moment. Notice that by the Pharisees' own admission, Those who were far off and in sin, but end up doing right, do the will of the Father. And yet, ironically, now Jesus puts them in a catch-22. He puts them between the proverbial rock and hard place, as it were, and he catches them in a scenario where they're actually condemning themselves. They answered his question in the midst of the parable, and yet Jesus has brilliantly showed them that it is them who he's talking about. The question that he asked them in verse 25 went unanswered, if you notice. But now he essentially asked them the same exact question in affiliation with a parable, drawing the answer out of them. He drew the answer out of them by way of common sense. If one says they will obey and they don't, but another says they won't and they do, the one who eventually does is the one who does right. And so by delivering this truth packaged in a parable, he draws out the truth that resided within the Pharisees and the implication of it with regard to his original question. And look at verse 32. This is where it kind of connects. Verse 32, it says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Friends, essentially Jesus is saying that even though tax collectors and prostitutes were far off and they were left to their sins, that they were now in the will of God. And though the Pharisees had began within the people group of the people of God, they were now choosing to reject God by rejecting Christ. Now even after witnessing the conversion of those who had horrible lives, These Pharisees are witnessing their conversion and witnessing their salvation in Christ. They're still not believing. Here then the Lord is comparing the Pharisees to those who said they would do the Father's work and yet they didn't. And actually the Pharisees were worse than those who said they would and didn't because now the Pharisees get the opportunity to see the whole picture as it were. They are getting an opportunity from Jesus to see, hey, you get the the second chance in a sense. You get a chance now to see these people being converted and to see that you started off in the people of God, but you're not, and to make the choice to receive Christ as Lord, and yet they still reject Christ. And ultimately, their issue was with the authority of God in their lives. Friends, this boils down to the same thing. He's dealing with the issue of authority in the Pharisees' hearts. So, I told you that it'd be a long introduction tonight, but I think it's going to set the scene well for the next passage that we're really going to dive into because there's no break. However, I do want to pause for a moment and just point out a few things to consider with regard to our view of authority. Friends, do you realize that culture of 21st century America and by and large the world not only allows for but actually promotes disobedience to authority. I want you to think about some of the movies that you've seen in the past few years and think about how many of them glorify and make heroes out of those who disobey authority. Man, and I'm not even limiting this to to PG-13 in our movies. How about animated films? Let's go back to uh, the days of my childhood, The Little Mermaid, right? Or the contemporary equivalent, Moana, which by the way, I love Moana, but there are some really messed up agendas going on in that movie, one of which in both of those films is to glorify disobedience to parents. I don't know if you noticed that, but you start watching for how much movies in our culture 
glorified disobedience to authority, and especially in Disney films, toward parents, and what ultimately ends up being the ultimate authority and the supreme authority of the individual is what? It's their own heart. Just follow your heart, and it will lead you in the right direction. So what we have as a culture is this presentation that your heart is your best authority. Your heart knows best, therefore obey it. And friends, let the takeaway be this. God informs how we respond to authority, not people and definitely not our own hearts. Amen? Amen. Now, in light of that, Jesus is not done teaching on authority here in this passage. And so as we launch into this, just one more point here. All three of the harmonic gospels place the parable of the landowners in conjunction with the initial question of Jesus. Matthew is the only one who includes the parable of the two sons, but both Mark and Luke have the question of Jesus' authority in the temple immediately followed by the parable of the landowner. And that's significant because I want to point out to you that all three gospel writers recognize that this also deals with the issue of authority. And so, with that in mind, let's look at this parable starting in verse 33. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vineyard to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They they said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. What this parable is serving as in Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees is an illustration. It's an illustration of the point that he's already been making. Now, from this illustration, I want to draw three considerations that all have to do with the issue of authority. I want to view it through that lens because I think contextually we have the basis to do so. And the first is I want to consider God's authority from this parable. God's authority. Jesus tells this parable, and right off the bat, we see a landowner who has authority over his land. Now, having authority over his land, he chooses to plant a vineyard. And this would have entailed putting up a wall, digging a wine press, building a tower. And just, again, note, the landowner has complete authority to do that because it's his land. An owner has rights to do what he wants with his property. He has authority over it. Now, this quotation from the Old Testament should begin to give away the intent of telling this parable in verse 33. The imagery here of the vineyard is often used to describe God's relationship to his people, namely to the nation of Israel. And so as he begins to speak of the vineyard, the Pharisees' attention should have perked up because he was talking about them. So initially we see that God has all authority over this land. Now, the parable then states that the landowner, after setting things into motion, delegates the work out to some vine growers and he goes away. And so secondly about God, we see that God delegates his authority. God delegates his authority. And this entrusting of the vineyard here is a reference to the entrusting of the kingdom into the hands of men. God had entrusted His work into the hands of men, beginning way back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, throughout Old Testament history, the nation of Israel was responsible for much of God's work. And even if you think about just the bringing forth of the law, the bringing forth of the scriptures, uh, all the prophets, all the kings, further Messiah himself would come from the nation of Israel. Therefore, it's little doubt here that the vine growers represent the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And so, we see then a relationship of authority is being established. 
The landowner has authority over the land, and he delegates the authority for management purposes, though he himself still possesses ultimate authority. And upon leaving the vineyard, this is key, friends, the vine growers both have authority and are under authority at the same time. They have authority and they're under authority. Now, following this, an unfortunate trifecta of rebellious action proceed this delegation. And here we see a third attribute of God, namely that God is patient with his authority. God is patient with his authority. Think about these, these workers. First, they kill, stone, and beat the slaves whom the master sent. And so then the master perhaps is wondering, well, maybe there was a misunderstanding. I'll send a second group that's bigger to remind them that they are coming on my behalf. And what do they do to the second group? They do the exact same thing. They kill them once again. Thirdly, then the, the landowner sends his son. And perhaps he's thinking, well, surely they won't kill my son. He comes from my own family. He represents my very likeness. He is, after all, the heir. And yet, they kill the son as well. And I just think, friends, what a demonstration of the long-suffering of the Lord, the patience of him. And just as a moment of reflection, do you ever feel the weight of your own failures before the Lord and just think, Lord, why am I alive? Why are you being so patient with me? Why am I not dead on the spot like Nadab and Abihu or Ananias and Sapphira? I deserve that. I deserve that. And yet Psalm 86.15 reminds us, You, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Friends, God is so patient as is demonstrated in this parable. Now, in addition to seeing God's authority, this parable teaches us something about Christ's authority. It, it teaches us about the authority of the Son. First, we see that his authority is set apart from the initial messengers. Notice in the parable that the Son carries more weight, he carries more significance, he carries more authority. And in the same way, this is used to represent Jesus as compared to the prophets. The prophets carried the authority of God because they spoke the word of God directly. But Jesus is far greater than the prophets. He was the ultimate prophet from God, the Son of God himself. Second, Jesus gave up his authority to make a great sacrifice and though this parable doesn't capture the intent of the Son, we know from elsewhere in Scripture why Jesus came to earth. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus speaks of this terrifying and horrible crucifixion that he would endure. Jesus paid the ultimate price for the sins of the world by way of crucifixion on the cross, namely his death. His blood was spilt. The disciples couldn't understand this. The disciples saw that as a terrible thing, the worst of the worst. And their Lord, their master, their, their rabbi was going to endure this? So Jesus, in a sense, gave up his authority for a time on earth, as Philippians 2 states. And yet another observation about Christ's authority is that Christ's authority brings about the wrath of God. Let me rephrase that. Rejecting Christ's authority brings about the wrath of God. Yes, I want to hold in balance. God is patient. And man, he's been patient with me especially. But the line in which he will not cross is to extend patience and kindness and mercy to those who deliberately reject his son. He will not cross that line. His mercy and patience will not carry over that line. That is the line drawn in the sand. If you reject the Son, you have rejected God and any offer of mercy. It's really spitting in the face of God to reject his Son, his own Son whom he sent. And so this unbelief, friends, stirs up his righteous wrath and judgment as is shown at his arrival in the vineyard. So to capture the behavior of the vine growers in a nutshell, we can say this of both the vine growers and the Pharisees, that they abused and re rejected God's authority and Christ's authority. And as a reminder, they had no right to this. 
God had extended them the opportunity to work in the vineyard, to steward the vineyard, to be able to make a living. There was no entitlement here. And yet the Pharisees acted as though they had a right to it. They acted as though it belonged to them in the first place, when in fact it did not. So this led them to disrespect two waves of the slaves that the owner sent, which is represented by the prophets, and not only this, but also the owner's son, which would disrespect the owner himself. And in like manner, the Pharisees had done the same crime. Not only would they disrespect and persecute Christians or Old Testament prophets and those people of God, but eventually they would disrespect and even kill the owner's son, the one who was sent in his very likeness. And by doing so, they disrespected and abandoned the father. Now, a third and final observation from this parable regarding authority is we see something about man's authority. It teaches us about man's authority. Now, keep in mind, this parable is about Israel as a whole, and in particular, its leaders. But we are taught much about mankind as a whole. For example, we see here that we have the authority of partaking in the building work of God's kingdom. We as Gentiles are the second group of vine workers who would be hired. We are the nations, the second peoples that would be hired on. We have the privilege then to work hard unto the Lord. And again, we've been given an authority from God. Secondly, though, we see that we have the authority to make choices. We can choose if we want to be faithful in our work to the Lord or if we're going to be unfaithful in our work. We can choose to do wickedly or to squander what's been entrusted to us. We can choose how to use the authority that has been bestowed upon us. And this leads into a third observation, that our authority has accountability. And friends, this is silly, but think about it. Dogs and cats don't have authority. Therefore, they have no accountability. Therefore, they face no judgment. We have been given authority. Therefore, we have accountability. And therefore, we will incur judgment. There will be a day of reckoning for us all. Don't forget, this is a delegated authority. This is not an earned or entitled authority. We have been entrusted with an authority, made in the image of God, entrusted with God's kingdom work, and we will all stand before God one day. We'll stand before God positionally to see if we've trusted in Christ or not. And then, for those who have trusted in Christ, we will again be judged for whether or not we were faithful with the lives and resources and opportunities that God gave us we will be accountable for the authority that God has given us as mankind. Well, a last observation about our authority from, about mankind that we see from this passage is that we know, and catch this, we know that the judgment of our authority is just. Look again at verse 40. It says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, who's going to respond to this question? It's the Pharisees themselves. Look at what they say in verse 41. They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. <laughs> the Pharisees are calling for the landowner's heads here, are they not? The Pharisees, even the Pharisees recognize that the judgment upon authority is just. Friends, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is just unbelievable. This parable that Jesus tells is so captivating that it sucks the Pharisees right in. They just get sucked right into this narrative, right into this story. Okay? They really, I believe, they forgot their original question of Jesus and his original question to them. And they're just captivated in this story. Now, another element that comes to play here is that the Pharisees love to hear themselves talk. They love to hear themselves sound moral and perhaps eloquent and full of justice and righteousness. And so I imagine all these dynamics are at play as they blurb out this answer in verse 42. Now here's the ironic part. <laughs> Their answer was actually profound. There's a lot of truth bound up. Jesus doesn't even have to correct anything they say. He just says, yeah, that's right. I'm going to move on to the next point. Think about this. Number one, they recognize that judgment is due to these wicked vine growers. And number two, they recognize that replacement was imminent. Judgment was coming and replacement was imminent. Now, 
Little did they know, they were actually talking about themselves. Again, do you see the mastery of Jesus' teaching here? He's leading them through the hoops. Now they've just proclaimed their own condemnation. They've hung themselves. They themselves would soon incur the wrath of God in judgment as they proclaimed about themselves, not knowing it. And God would then take the kingdom from the Jews and give it to a new vine grower, a new people, namely the church. And this explains Jesus' answer in verse 42 when Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? He says, did you never read in the scriptures? These were the Pharisees. These people knew the Bibles literally like the back of their hand. And yet they had missed the whole point. So with that as an illustration, again, There's a flow here. There's a flow of this narrative. This parable serves as an illustration of the point. One verse now, Jesus is going to use to explain the parable. It's a little confusing, so we're going to connect some dots. He's going to use an analogy to explain a parable, which is a giant analogy, in answering the question. So look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes here from Psalms 118. And he quotes one verse, but I'm just going to read for you five verses in the surrounding context. I want you to listen to this messianic portion of this psalm. Psalm 118, verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, in referencing Psalm 118, Jesus is showing that he is the means of salvation. He is showing that he is the righteousness that was longed for in the Old Testament. He is the gate of the Lord. He is the cornerstone upon which the whole building rests. And that's specifically the analogy that he's calling upon in Matthew 21. He's calling upon the picture of the cornerstone. Now just a little bit of background with this. This is going to be helpful to know. The cornerstone was the most important part of the building back in this day. All of the rest of the foundation was set upon the cornerstone. And by the way, these stones would put these little fake stones to shame. Okay, These stones were huge. Meters and meters and meters, wide and deep and tall. These were massive, several-ton stones. This is the cornerstone. Now imagine, how square does that stone have to be? How structurally secure and with integrity does that stone have to be? Immensely. Immensely secure, immensely plumb and just. And in fact, the rest of the foundation would be set off that stone. The walls would get their angles from that stone. The roof, therefore, would get its correctness or functionability from that stone. All of it centered around the cornerstone. It had to be the largest, the most sturdy, and the most square. And the Lord Jesus, according to Psalm 118 and his application here, is the cornerstone that was precious. He was the most important part of the building. He was the best stone, the best cornerstone ever, the most perfect one that had ever been made, the most square, the most plumb, the most sturdy. Again, the most precious stone, and yet it says the builders rejected him. The Lord then in Matthew 21 is drawing upon this well-known Old Testament psalm to show the Pharisees that they were in the process of rejecting the one whom this was all about. They were rejecting the chief or premier or first cornerstone. And in so doing, they were numbering themselves among the foolish builders, among the foolish vine growers, among the wicked and evil whose condemnation is just and is imminent. Now, you may be wondering, 
what in the world? We're talking about vine growers and this stuff, and now all of a sudden we're talking about stones and buildings. Why is he doing this? Why is Jesus bringing in a new analogy? Well, the reason he's bringing in a new analogy is to demonstrate that the stone is equivalent to the sun in the parable and that the builders are equivalent to the vine growers of the parable. And really, friends, he's using this to make a claim of deity. Everyone knew that was talking about the Messiah, and yet now he's taking that picture of Messiah and linking it with sonship. He's linking it with deity, being the son of God. And at the same time, he's condemning the Pharisees by showing that they're both the builders and the vine growers. So as we begin to kind of get into the the application now, this is the application portion. He's going to launch into specific applications to the Pharisees, beginning in verse 43. He says, Therefore I say to you, Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And again, just as the owner brought an end to the old vine growers and gave the kingdom to a new set of vine growers, so Jesus now is affirming the Pharisees' profound statement by saying the kingdom of God would be removed from the nation of Israel and given to the church. And I just want to remind you that this has always been part of the plan. In fact, perhaps the most clear uh, teaching on this is in Romans chapter 9, verse 25. The Apostle Paul quotes Hosea from two different places. 9.25, he says, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Again, this was always part of the plan. Now the church carries the responsibility of the vine growers of the kingdom. We are God's field. We are God's body. We are the body of Christ. And we are here to bear fruit and to do the work of the kingdom which was intended. Now, God will give the kingdom back to Israel in the millennial kingdom. All of this was in the plan, again, in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 and 25 and 26. The fulfillment of God's original plan will be continued. The true and better Adam will be reigning on earth perfectly as it was intended, with no sin. And the nation of Israel will be restored and will again be God's vine growers. So the first application that Jesus applies is that the kingdom would be reassigned. But secondly, look at verse 44. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, if you follow the flow of Matthew's gospel, things are, are building and building and building, and they culminate in chapter 23 when Jesus unleashes on the Pharisees. Chapter 23 is all the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, over and over. And I believe we see that foreshadowed here. He begins to pronounce judgment on the Pharisees. And really, in this verse 44, Jesus is pulling together several images from the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, Daniel 2, Isaiah 28. And if you ever get a chance, I'd encourage you to study the stone and the cornerstone in the Old Testament, in particular in Isaiah, and you will develop a fascinating Old Testament theology of the Messiah. These guys knew a lot about the Messiah. They really did. But in the midst of this context, Jesus is making the connection for the audience that he was the stone. He's making it very clear. He is the stone. He's the stone that's laid in Zion, the tested stone, the costly stone, whom I've, according to Isaiah 28, 16, was firmly placed And I think Peter captures well, if you want to flip to the end of your Bibles, toward the end, 1 Peter captures well that there are two ways to respond to the stone. And this is extremely important as we interpret verse 44. 1 Peter chapter 2 captures the two ways that one can respond to the stone. 1 Peter chapter 2 Beginning in verse 6 says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. So again, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, as do several other New Testament writers, to show that Jesus is the precious stone who is to be believed in. Notice the application. You believe in the stone. 
The believer does not respond to the stone by being broken into pieces. The believer responds to the stone by believing in it. But look at chapter 2, verse 7, the second half. Now it says, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. So now Peter's pulling from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, which speaks of the stone being a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. And just to capture the picture here, here's what's going on. This was referring to a stone that would be in a pathway that was so firmly planted in the ground that when your foot hit it, it would not move. It wouldn't be like a little pebble that you'd hit and it'd just go rolling in front of you. This stone would go unnoticed, underfoot, and it would trip you and you would fall and you would be broken. You would be broken. This is the picture that is going on here. So returning now to Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, to fall on the stone is not a good thing. To be broken to pieces is not a good thing. And in fact, the word to fall here is actually in its most general sense, the most common usage is to unintentionally fall. And friends, does that not fit with the idea of tripping over a stone? No one ever looks at a stone and intentionally goes and trips over it. If you trip, it means that you didn't mean to do that. Otherwise, it would just be you threw yourself on the ground, right? The idea of tripping is that you don't know what's going to happen, and it unintentionally happens. Therefore, even the usage of the word here indicates that this is an unintentional thing. This is an unintentional being tripped up by the stone. And think about the Jews, I think about the Jews at large. Just a few days earlier, they were worshiping Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And in just a few days from now, they would turn around and be calling for his crucifixion over and above a condemned criminal. This was the fickleness of the people just being swayed so easily. And yet, those who were indifferent to Jesus or who didn't see it coming would stumble upon him and be broken. Their judgment was going to come nonetheless. But what about the religious leaders? What about the ones influencing this mob of people? Well, their fate would be even worse. Look again at 44. It says, but on whomever it falls, in the second half, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So not only would the leaders also come into contact with the stone and be broken, but the stone would fall upon them and crush them entirely. And in fact, this word now literally means to pulverize. It means to make into a fine dust or to make into a powder by crushing it so violently. This is not talking about a light judgment, friends. There's nothing easy about this. There's no chance of survival or of making some form of payment for your sins and then being okay at the end. This is pulverization. Just think about that word. The religious leaders then had ignited the wrath of God and of the Son and would incur an even stricter judgment for their damning false teaching. And the sad reality is that the scribes and the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying. They knew that he was talking about them. This is what blows my mind. Look at verse 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Guys, don't miss what he's saying here. The scribes and the Pharisees understood the connection between the parable of the landowner and the son. They understood Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God. They understood that Jesus was condemning them as the vine growers and the builders who rejected the cornerstone. They understood. This is again manifested at the end when Jesus resurrects and they make up a big lie to avoid having to come to grips with the truth that Jesus was in fact who he said he was. And yet, they choose their fate, that of being crushed by the cornerstone. Now, for our sakes, application-wise, I want to relate this back to authority because I think that's the heart of the issue that Jesus is driving at. 
This conclusion communicates that Jesus has been given all authority. He is the chosen stone and the one to carry out the judgment of God. Therefore, his authority must be recognized in one's life or it will be exercised in their death. You must recognize it in your life or it will be exercised in your death. And as many have said before, either bow the knee now or you will be forced to bow it later. Now, looking again at the bigger picture, zooming out, the conversation began by the Pharisees asking Jesus a question about his authority. And Jesus caps it off here by showing that he has the authority not only to teach in the temple, but to judge all the living and the dead and to crush those who do not believe in him. Now that's authority. That is authority. This conversation with the Pharisees actually continues into Matthew chapter 22. And we don't have time to get into that. But one point I want to pull from that is that there Jesus communicates that he is the one of whom the whole marriage banquet feast revolves around. And he still gives an open invitation for them to come. He is the king who sits on the throne and invites all to come. And if you think about the picture of a king, there was no one of higher authority than the king in this day. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the cornerstone. He is the landowner's son. He's been given all authority under heaven and on earth. Colossians chapter 1 says God has subjected all things to him. And Ephesians chapter 1 says we as the church have been given as our head the one who is already the head over everything, namely Jesus Christ. So friends, here's the question tonight. How do you relate to the authority of Christ in your life? Plain and simple. Have you surrendered to it? Have you believed the Son who was sent as the precious cornerstone? Do you continue to believe? Jesus' authority extends to all of our lives right now. And every day we make choices regarding that authority. All of our choices, we are making a decision based on Christ's authority in our lives. We either joyfully obey it or we disregard it and we disrespect it. And so friends, my prayer is that it would be said of us that we love, we passionately love the authority of Christ in our lives. Amen? Let's bow together and pray. Lord, this is our desire. We want to love Christ's authority in our lives. Lord, we know we will never escape authority. We will always be bound and confined in some way because we are created. We are not autonomous. And so, Lord, why not submit to the greatest, most loving and awesome and wonderful authority that we can even imagine, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray for those who have not yet positionally surrendered to his authority in their lives, recognizing him as both the Lord of their lives and their their Savior. We pray that they would do so before it's too late. Lord, that they would come to him and know the joy, the peace, Lord, the intimacy that we have with you. God, would this group of people demonstrate the attractiveness of walking through life with Christ and being submitted to his authority. And Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that we would love and embrace the authority of Christ, that we would make decisions based upon his authority. Lord, that it would be said of us that Jesus' authority is the most recognizable attribute of our person. That's what we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.